Hi everyone, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Safsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. Uh, today we have Jens Larsen. Uh, Jens, welcome. Thank you very much, Mo. Jens is a Director of Geoeconomics um, Research at Eurasia Group. So uh, Jens, the first question, uh, what is geoeconomics? <laughs> well, geoeconomics is the economics version of, of geopolitics. So Eurasia Group is very much focused on the politics. Our motto is politics first, but the economics are also important. And my focus is trying to bring the two together and try to see how we can make politics stick, stick to the economic and markets analysis. Okay, very good. And uh, maybe, uh, Jens, maybe a little bit of history of yourself, uh, what you've been up to over the illustrious career so far. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, illustrious, yes. I started at the Bank of England back in time, uh, where I worked as, a, as an economist and as a manager, uh, working, amongst other things, on the, on the bank's uh, asset purchase program during the, the global financial crisis. I also had a spell at the IMF, um, where I worked as a UK representative at the IMF board. In 2010, I thought central bank intervention was all over, and it was going to be much more fun to be in the private sector. So I joined Royal Bank of Canada as chief European economist, and I've also worked for um, for Wellington Management for a, a while. Oh, right. uh, but since then, I've joined Eurasia, and now it's all now it's all politics. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, let's let's go straight to it. So. Um, 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 let's maybe talk a little bit about, and this is certainly what Eurasia Group is very uh, famous for, is sort of top 10 geopolitical risks. Mm. Shall we start there in terms of, you know, what are the, we don't need to go through 10, but, you know, the top three or four things, and maybe over this three-month period, what has started to change in, that, uh, in, in those predictions you had? Well, I guess you'll be unsurprised that we spend a lot of time thinking about and talking to our clients about the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the impact that has had. And I think that is still a very important political uh, political risk. It's still obviously a, an important war and it has very many spillovers to geopolitics and on an economic front. I would say one big change over the last few months is whereas last year we spent most of the time focusing on the impact that might have on commodity markets, on oil prices, on the risk of gas rationing in Europe and the risks that that posed to the, to the macroeconomic outlook. That was very important. Now with energy prices having come down, I, I, I think we, we have to look at it differently. And one of the areas where I think it's, it's still very, very important is it's, it's potentially an accelerator of many of the other tensions we see globally. So the one we're focused on in, in our recent work has been um, the relationship between China and the US. We know there's this uh, strong um, continued tension between the two, this, um, this relationship of strategic competition between the two, and the Russia-Ukraine conflict can act as an, as an accelerator because obviously the US is, with the rest of the West, is on one side, the Chinese are more ambivalent, should we say, about their relationship with, with Russia and their, their, their stance on the, on the war. So we see one of the things that changed really is that we, we have looked at the US-China relationship and, and thought we saw attempts to stabilize that strategic competition, to manage that strategic competition, to reduce risks around that relationship. But I think what we have seen in recent weeks and recent months is that the, the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict poses a risk because the Chinese might have to choose side and might provide support for, for Russia. Um, the more support they provide, the, the quicker the deceleration in the, in the good relationship between China and the US. And that, to me, is, is a deeply meaningful 
change in terms of politics, but also obviously in terms of economics and in terms of markets. So uh, let's let's un- unpack that a bit because I think um, the discussion is actually a very interesting one. So if I sort of put the playbook, we started with Xi doing a pivot on economic reopening and COVID and really going for it. I think that was probably the first big surprise for for uh, certainly the Q- Q4 period. The second surprise, I guess, certainly for me was uh, Schultz being invited over, and now Macron's going. Macron's going next week even. Um, so there's clearly this sort of build-up of we need to, if, if the US-China relationship is is kind of broken and probably can't be fixed anytime soon, we probably need to build a better relationship with Europe. Um, but I guess more recently for me, which is where I don't quite understand the relationship, is now she goes to, to, to Russia you know, is uh, pointing up to Putin, you know, how do you see that dynamic and, and how that's evolved over the course of the last three or four months? For, for sure, the, 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 the Chinese U-turn on, on COVID policy was a, a big surprise. And I think one thing that's really important with that big surprise is it was an unpredicted, unpredictable big surprise. Mm-hmm. And that means that uh, actually what we are learning from that is we know less about Xi than, than we might think we know, but also we, we know that Xi has consolidated his power. He's got an ability to, con- to perform that kind of policy U-turn very rapidly. So there's a lot of uncertainty about Chinese policy intentions. And I think the reason why we're having these difficult conversations is exactly we have less certainty about what the Chinese uh, are trying to achieve and, and, and how they're going to go about doing that. So I think when you when you when you were mentioning the the relationship with Europe, we see it more as a as an attempt to, if you want, keep keep Europe in the fold, an att- attempt to um, divide uh, Europe from the U.S. in terms of of that strategic uh, tension between China and the U.S. But we also think that the Europeans are essentially in the in the in the in the U.S. camp on on that front. But in part because of the Russia uh, Ukraine conflict, where the the alliance between the U.S. and and Europe is is very strong. So yes, uh, Europe has got a very strong uh, strategic interest in keeping a strong economic relationship. Uh, it's an export destination. It's a uh, it's a destination for FDI flows from Europe, but also, of course, FDI flows the other way. So that relationship is significant for both Europe and for China. But there's also, I think, an understanding that that the relationship um, is becoming increasingly complex, and that Europe has to manage those strategic challenges in the same way that the US has that with it, those FDI flows come more Chinese influence in Europe that comes, um, um, not all of which is benign. You have to manage data, you have to manage the, uh, the, the financial relationships and so on. And I think what we are seeing here is that, again, the Russia-Ukraine conflict is potentially an accelerator for that structural tension. Mm-hmm. So um, when I think about it, very, very big picture, if you think of of the early 2000s as a period of the great Chinese integration into the global trade system and where I think we had that view that China was going to continue to be a source of financial, economic, technological integration. Now we see it as as being less of that kind. I'm not particularly a big fan of globalization or whatever uh, you want to use about that term, but it's a different kind of economic integration that we are pursuing with with China, a different kind of relationship. So obviously one of your... uh, uh, predictions uh, early in the year about geopolitical resources. I think he uses was it maximalist um, G, right? Mm-hmm. Which is because he's so powerful, um, he's able to make decisions 
kind of like at a whim (laughs) potentially right and that's why you get this sort of really hard to read picture of you know being open to covid now jack ma suddenly appeared back in china you know and and uh you know the company's being split up and that seems to be kind of one policy and then you've got the europe policy then you've got russia policy i mean how as we as analysts supposed to sort of figure what the next step's going to be uh, or it's just completely unpredictable and we should just give up no i, do, I don't think it's completely un, unpredictable so it is about strategic autonomy and and she is focused on that strategic autonomy right, and he's right. i think essentially uh trying to break a, a the existing world order with the us as the as the dominant force and and for them therefore the relationship with russia is important it's not just about oil it's about having a multi a multipolar world where the US is less dominant and where they have more, where the Chinese have more influence. So I, I think if you if you start with that as as the as a sort of guiding thought, then a lot of what is happening makes sense. They still need growth. They still need the economic relationship with the US and with, with Europe, and they will do a lot to to maintain that. But but there are other concerns that are also critically important: that strategic autonomy, that capacity to exert their, their power and to build a, a different a different world I think is very important for them mm-hmm. so um, I guess sort of sort of two things where do you think this you know goes to in the next sort of 10 or 15 years what's what what's your obviously not gonna hold you to that prediction but where do you think it will go in the next 10 to 15 years well so I, I think looking at it as an economist yeah. um, I think Although you may have a, 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 an acceleration in this deterioration, for, for me the, the 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 long-term trend is one in which you would continue to have deep economic relationships in some areas, but you would see strong restrictions in others, and you see that most obviously right now in in terms of technology. And I think over time you might also see constraints on finance and on, on FDI flows one way and one way or the other. That may sound benign but I, I don't think it is if you think of your own investment strategies or, or or that of your of your clients then china has played an important role in that china has played an important role not just in the economy but also as a source of of, of funds and, and a destination for for investments and i think that's going to be a lot more challenging not a break not a necessarily a breakdown although if the, the chinese really step on it and provide lethal support to the russians then you could you could see a disruptive disruptive outcome but that I think that tension means that the way we should look at, at China as an economic player is, is going to be materially different over time. And I think, again, if you are, if you are a global investor, whatever you ask a class, this is going to be important. So I guess pretty much CIO hat in that regard, I essentially need to put a bigger discount on valuation to make that destination attractive, essentially. I, I think that's right. So, so in very broadly speaking, higher risk premium on, yeah. on those assets. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but also, I think, a, a, a planning for extreme events. I mean, what the Russia-Ukraine conflict has... has again, Russia is very different from China. Yeah, very course. different place, yeah, yeah. Uh, very different attitudes, very different levels of integration, but also very much lower level of, of economic significance than, than China. Yeah. But I think what we have learned, and, and I think what the market and what developing, uh, 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 emerging and developing economies have learned from the uh, from the Russia crisis, is that if you break that relationship, if you see that kind of decoupling, it can go very quickly. Mm-hmm. Now I know, um, I thought it was going to be catastrophic for the Russian economy. It turned out just to be pretty bad. I think it will still long term be pretty catastrophic, not to be connected globally in terms of financial flows, in terms of investment flows, in terms of knowledge, and so on. But what what we I think what we the West has demonstrated 
in the last years. You can do that decoupling really quite rapidly. And in a, in a strategically tight spot, the Europeans and the US have been willing to accept really high cost of taking, of taking those decisions. I mean, we were, if, if you and I had had this conversation six months ago, we would have been talking about the risks of a, of a deep recession of energy rationing in Europe yeah. because we were trying to do that very rapid response of weaning ourselves of, of Russian energy. It turned out that worked out. Um, but, you know, six months ago, that was not so obvious. Mm, yeah, no, exactly. I think, yeah, I, I guess that cohesion and forcefulness in terms of policy, you know, that probably is a probably a good signpost for the Chinese as well, right? I think if, if it was indifferent, if there was political wind fighting, they weren't too sure what to do, you know, they still wanted Russia gas, you know, that could have turned very much in China's favour from a geopolitical perspective uh, if that cohesion wasn't there. I, I think so. And and I think so far the cohesion is strong. There's there's clearly risk to this. Fatigue might, might kick in. Of course. But, yeah. but ultimately, of course, there's a big political risk in yeah. the US too, which is is that the support um, starts to a, wane, yeah. af, might start start weakening yeah. either in, in the run-up to an election or after yeah. after the next election. Now, another school of thought on the recent sort of uh, you know, uh, G trip to 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 Moscow um, is that um, providing that support um, potentially, if Russia um, and the war doesn't go their way, they have more casualties, they get pushed back further. That Putin's power itself could be diminished. Do you think this is a way of G to? provide support that there's no other sort of general sitting around Putin you say well this is my chance to take power it's it's certainly i i i think it's support for the stability of russia i don't i don't know and and i mean the politics of of russia the internal power politics of russia are just very very difficult to understand and and predict but i certainly see we certainly see that the chinese actions as a support for for yeah. for the regime and making sure that that Russia continues to be a player. Yeah. You don't want a, a meltdown in, in one of your yeah. key strategic allies. Yeah, no, I I think that's exactly right because if if Russia suddenly became a big failed state, uh, you know, um, then one of the key allies, as you say, of China would, would, would go away and that in itself would weaken China quite considerably. Uh, and, as well. and and you want to demonstrate to to your both your friends and foe that you are yeah. capable of su- of supporting yeah. an ally. So I, th- yeah. I think that's that's important. Yeah. Well, certainly very fascinating to see how that uh, how that uh, plays out. Uh, what are some of the other areas in terms of your kind of top four risks that you're uh, you're, you're focused on? Well, so I, when I'm when I'm thinking of those again, as it's six months ago, this was the driver of the energy risk, right? The energy risk might be much less of an issue, but I'm still looking at a at a at a global economy that's reeling from this massive terms of trade shock that we had last year when when oil prices went up when gas prices went up i know they have come down but we're still in a, in a situation where uh, where energy prices are high we've just seen this week opec plus in a in a very clearly politically motivated move has has, has cut production and and that has an impact on oil prices we are still in, in a world there where there's 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 pressure on the supply side of the economy we're still um, we're still facing those those terms of trade risks. They're not as intense as they were six months ago, but I, I still see downside risks from 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 that source. I think the geopolitical uncertainty um, in Russia, Ukraine, but also the the relationship between China and the U.S. is creating uncertainty, and I think that that restricts the the growth outlook. So I think those two forces are important. But I think also, of course, very importantly, we are seeing we are now seeing the impact 
of the tightening in, in monetary policy, the, the impact of that turn in, in, uh, in, in policy having an impact on credit conditions, on financial conditions, on growth, and, and so on. The idea is to quell inflation, and that may eventually work, but actually what we've seen is a strong policy response and very persistent inflation. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's still that's still a big challenge. My, my call is that this is going to be all right, um, that uh, those financial crises we may see pop up um, will be managed uh, just about as well as the ones we have seen thus far. So it doesn't threaten that that growth outlook, but still the my baseline is one of very weak growth. It's, it's uh, depressed by these geopolitical factors, by this, this pressure on commodity prices, but importantly also by this tightening in monetary policy that, that's really important. So let me uh, unpack that because I think there's uh, two elements to that. So the first is obviously um, monetary policy. Um, do you think the Federal Reserve in particular has over-tightened and... Um, what do you see the sort of prognosis in terms of, you know, economy? And I, I guess the big tension at the moment is the market right, or is um, the Fed going to be right? You know, at the moment the market. I mean, even in the last two days, we've seen you know bond yields come down nearly twenty five basis points yeah. on these slightly weaker jolts data and and the data, you know, ISM data, services data today. Um, who's going to be right? Well, I mean, the, the volatility in bond markets is extraordinary, and and you obviously got much more experience with with bond markets and bond market investment than I do. But I I do think it's extraordinary to yeah. to see yeah. to see that volatility in a in a historical context, and and um, uh, well, who's going to be right? I think um, the scenarios I've described there with with not a deep recession with continued inflationary pressure, sticky inflation. I think the sticky inflation, I didn't talk much about that, mm, but the, mm. the idea that workers who've seen this massive cut in their real disposable income are going to continue to put pressure on wages to restore that real real wage. Um, I, I think we are in an, an inflation environment. The central bankers are very focused on that. And actually what the, the crisis we've seen in banking recently demonstrated is that they really want to stick to, to the mantra of splitting these two, the financial stability concerns, away from the monetary policy concerns so they can continue to focus on that. That doesn't mean they're going to hike an awful lot, mm. but I think it means that cutting, unless you see a really sharp recession, is very unlikely. Mm. So my baseline is one of, of, of continued tight monetary policy, and that means uh, that we're going to continue to see financial conditions and we're going to continue to see credit conditions tighten further. So we're not done yet. We're done in the sense or close to being done in, in terms of the monetary policy tightening. Mm-hmm. But the impact is still to be seen in credit conditions and is still to be seen on on, on the growth of credit and, of course, the growth of, of demand. Mm. So I guess the bond market is trying to sort of, you know, second-guess this, right? It's a second derivative. So... The market is already pricing in now, you know, rate cuts, maybe fifty basis points by the end of the year, mm-hmm. uh, and f- another fifty basis points next year. So, um, um, how do you think that sort of dynamic is going to play out? Uh, obviously, we've seen a bit of weaker data today in the last few days. The momentum seems to be going in the Fed's direction, right? Uh, maybe that's how probably the way to describe it. Um, uh, do you think that they will want to see three percent inflation to not and three percent going to two, if you like, or they want to see that two number next to it before mm. they say, okay, you know, now we can 
we can just ease off the brakes. I, I think they'll ease off way before they see two, and I, I really hope they do because otherwise, <laughs> gonna otherwise be problem, we're yeah. we're going to have a problem. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah. but I think it's more the question of you know, how quickly do you turn. So that exact exactly that pivot you're just yeah. describing, where yeah. you see rate cuts yeah. when the economy slows, because that that's what I'm I think is going to happen. We are going to see those yes. indicators turn weaker, yeah. Yeah. and that's the the question is then do you say ooh this is a, this we are on the cusp of a recession we must do something immediately or yeah. do the do you say the inherent inflationary pressures are so strong we need to to maintain this stance yeah. and I. I think at this point, they're on the let's let's maintain the stance. Yeah. I mean, let let let's see um, if the recession is deeper. That's the you know that's the the downside scenario where yeah. it turns out that yeah. actually they have over tightened. Yeah. Uh, credit conditions turned out much worse. The financial crisis uh, that we have seen thus far are harping us of, of worse things to come. Mm-hmm. In that scenario, then well, well, yes, then you will cut rates, but then you have to have. A lot more volatility. Well, you had a lot. Uh, you have to have even more volatility first in in the financial sector, in in the banking sector, before you come to the to the to the rate cuts. Mm-hmm. So I think a little bit of you know weaker ISM and 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 uh, job jobs reports that turn out to be not so strong is is not going to let the Fed to cut it. You're going to have to see something yeah. um, much worse than that. Well, at least it, I guess it means pause. It doesn't necessarily mean a rate cut anytime soon, but it you know certainly um, uh, kind of eases the pressure um, and. Just looking at sort of two-year bond yields, I think, uh, you know, it, for me, and again, it's really bad to make, you know, one-year or two-year predictions here. But, you know, for me, I think I very much see this as a mid-cycle type of process. Mm-hmm. Sort of, We may see 150 basis points of rate cuts in total in this cycle. Mm-hmm. So we take, you know, we go from five to say three and a half uh, for, for argument's sake. Um, and then we kind of have a recovery and then we have a proper recession. <laughs> I know 2025, 2026, that kind of you know, viewpoint. That's kind of, if I look at the bond market and I look at what currency markets are telling me and I'm trying to piece a puzzle together, that seems to be the roadmap in our think of roadmaps, yep. you know, and of course, roadmaps, you know, you get divergence, you know, you can, you can suddenly go down the left hand corner, go down a hill, go up a hill. But that's kind of, thi- that's, that's my thinking, you know, at this, um, uh, at this sort of juncture. And again, just looking at the bond market, or well, five year rates, what the shape of the yield curve is mm-hmm. telling me. Uh, I don't think that's an unreasonable development on a two-year view uh the path could be very different though i i, I think that's right but here's i want to give you try to give you a geopolitical please pers- yeah, yeah, perspective yeah, on that yeah. which is so all these china risks and the, the the tensions between the china china and the u.s uh the focus we've had on energy transition you and i have talked a lot about climate yes. climate change and climate change transition policies before you know these strategic priorities are, are becoming more important, right? Mm-hmm. Security is becoming more important. Defense spending will become more important. So I think if you're looking over the next three to five years, then the shape and nature of the economy we're living in is going to be very Changing. different. It's going to be one with, I think, more more fixed investment. It's going to be one where there's more government intervention, where these strategic priorities dominate the focus on growth. And I think it, essentially that boils down to it being a more in inflationary environment, yeah. one probably with higher real interest rates probably also higher nominal interest rates, yeah. quite a lot of inflation volatility. So I think when you're sort of trying to, when you're doing your two years, you have to also think of the five years, of course, yes, and of course, then, yeah. you know, wh- where do you want to anchor this? And and to, to my mind, it's a radically different nominal environment compared to what we've had in the last 10 years. It's one with probably higher nominal growth, much stronger government role in the allocation of resources. And to my mind, sort of the, the sum of that, and there's going to be lots of factors um, in that um 
Uh, but the sum of that is is that it's likely to be more inflationary. Mm. So um, one of the things that that is interesting at the moment is the dollar, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and you know, one of the, one of the things that fascinated me certainly over the last month is we had a major banking crisis. You know, Great Suisse, Silicon Valley Bank, and uh, a signature and a few others. Um, but the dollar was weaker. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you make of that? You know, what message is the dollar giving us that maybe other financial assets not giving us? Uh, I think it's in part giving us a message about the Europeans are very determined to step on on uh, on inflation and therefore their rates rate path has not been affected nearly as much. I, I do think that sort of very conventional short term consideration is is important. Um, I think um, when you're thinking about the the growth outlook in 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 uh, in the last six months, the revisions to the growth outlook in Europe have been absolutely radical. Mm-hmm. And I think globally, um, m- perhaps more cons- more concern about the U.S. and perhaps a little bit mm-hmm. less concern mm-hmm. about those EM financial crises, those uh, those uh, issues in Europe. than as I said, you and I would have discussed if we have sat here mm-hmm. six months ago. So I think the the the, the economy has played out differently. Mm. The big risks that I saw six months ago on the back of those very high commodity prices uh, and on the back of the tightening in policy, how it had played out at that point, have, have materialized to some extent in, in emerging markets and uh, um, Europe, but not really as strongly as I had expected. Mm. So mm. I think that um, you know the, the more benign outcome is an, a, a critical part of the, mm. the relatively weaker, weaker dollar. Mm. Um, and I guess the market, maybe this is too too flippant, but the market is almost seeing the Silicon Valley Bank as a, as a blip, as a mm. as a small thing that didn't really matter. I, mm. I think it's it's more of a systemic indicator. I think it's more of a challenge. Um, it's not. Um, it's you know, interest rates have gone up a lot. Uh, a lot of people lost a lot of money on bonds, mm. um, and um, and the impact that the tightening in monetary and financial conditions is going to have for still to be still to be seen. Mm. Uh, very fascinating. So I've got sort of uh, a couple of uh, points um, to sort of uh, to kind of get your views on. The first is um, uh, you know discussions we've had, uh, you and I have had over the last uh, you know year or two, has been around impact of climate policy on on uh, uh, on the global economy, mm-hmm. uh, and you know certainly we saw shades of this last year where. You know, uh, climate policy meant that European economies, in particular, were very vulnerable to the Russia-Ukraine situation. How do you see sort of climate policy impact in the global economy now uh, over the next few years? I think I think uh, climate change policies and energy security are pushing in the same direction. So, of course, energy security in the short run pushed in the direction yeah. of. Of yeah. greater reliance on on imported energy, yeah. but it's also made uh, self reliance and and domestically produced energy, if you want, which in Europe uh, means means green energy. Uh, yeah. It's made that much more imperative. Right. So that if we thought the political momentum was weak, it certainly strengthened that, and I think it's strengthened the, the financial incentives for doing something. And I think it's provided that sort of strategic direction that uh, the EU may not have had outside a crisis. So I think it, it it's. It's an acceleration, and I think when you're thinking about that from the perspective of investing in transition, then that's important. But it's also, of course, important for those who are having uh, their investments in 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 uh, traditional assets, in in carbon-based assets. Mm. Um, if you're thinking about 
very, very in a very macro sense, Europe is now investing massively in LNG capacity. In five or six years' time, that may not be so important. Uh, European the energy, European energy mix will look very differently. So I think it's an accelerator, and I think we're going to see is one of those strategic priorities that require more fixed investment. It requires uh, governments to intervene quite aggressively, not just in terms of providing their own investment or, or incent- incentivizing others. This is what we've seen with the US um, IIA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is not about inflation, mm-hmm. um, or not about inflation reduction, but about their allocation of resources, supporting supporting US industry in, in, in trying to achieve this green transition. The European response has not been as strong as I thought it would be, mm. but I think the pressure from uh, the key economic player pursuing that kind of strategy is going to be really, really strong. So I, I would expect that we would see much more aggressive European government intervention, first individually and eventually mm. the EU as a whole. Uh, the EU has got an issue with fiscal capacity because each of the countries by themselves may not be able to act on the same scale as the US and certainly not as swiftly. So there's going to be there's going to be challenges and I think Europe is challenged challenged from the perspective of acting as as aggressively but that external pressure is actually I think changing the, the view. And I think so I'm I talked a lot about Europe um because right now the the response there has been uh, the, the the pressure pressure from the U- Russia Ukraine crisis has been the biggest but when you're looking more broadly I think that that pressure is is uh, from industrial strategies, from those green transition is is very significant, also in emerging markets. Mm. So, um, just thinking about, um, I guess the Europeans have been, I guess, distracted because of Russia, Ukraine, and gas became much more higher priority in, in the very short term. Um, those pressures look alive. I, I can't believe natural gas has a two dollar <laughs> target on it at the moment, which is quite astonishing. Mm. You know, uh, given what we saw you know, a few, uh, well, 12 months ago, but also now, I guess, uh, you know, Italian gas prices, uh, consumer gas price about to drop 40% in the next few weeks, actually. Um, so I guess some of that pressure is alleviated, means they can pivot back to some of the more strategic initiatives. I think that's, it's it's going to ease the pressure on governments. Yeah. Um, I do think the the price pressure does have a, a very significant impact in that it discourages consumption. Yeah. Uh, so that has been a big, big impact yeah. on households yeah. and a, an even yeah. bigger impact on industry. So high yeah. energy prices, yeah. there's nothing more powerful than having the high yeah. price of an input, right? Uh, and, and, and they have responded to that. And you can see the efficiency that in efficiencies that have been achieved and you can see the reduction that has been in, in gas uh, demand and energy demand that has, has been achieved. So in a way, it's like forcing... Uh, the, the tax changes that European politicians were too scared to do and forcing that relative price change much more rapidly. Unfortunately, the Russians got some of the money initially and mm-hmm. and the gas producers are getting some of it now. But I think we are seeing that acceleration in the transition in part because of that, that mm-hmm. price effect. So we've shown shown ourselves we can do it. We've upped the pace. You talked about the Italians. You know, they're all very, very busy in, installing heat pumps yeah. at a great pace. Yeah. And and I don't think that would have happened had it not been for, yeah, for that shock. Yeah, yeah. You, you needed the stick. That's right. <laughs> you needed the stick. So maybe last question here is uh, is on the Middle East and the relationship between the US, Middle East, China, um, and obviously the recent OPEC increase. What are your thoughts around um, the Middle East relationship? Um because there's lots of sort of talk that, you know, well, the Americans and Saudi don't talk to each other anymore. You know, 
Saudi clearly has got its own strategic initiatives that it's uh, developing very aggressively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then obviously you've got this relationship with China. Will they start taking renminbi for their oil and all this sort of stuff? What's your, what's your thinking about the, the, the Saudi-Middle East relationship with China and the US? Well, it's certainly striking that the Chinese have been able to act in the way they have in, in the Middle East and act as a, as a real player. And that's, that's a big change. And, and I, 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 you know, geopolitically, that's that's a significant development, and it is it is a challenge to the to the U.S. and to 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 our existing relationships. I don't think it. I mean, it it is. It, does it threaten the U.S. leading financial position? Uh, no, I think more has been written about the de- decline of of <laughs> the dollar than is than is warranted. Yeah, yeah. But it does point to a. It, it does point to different economic relationships. It does point to the difficulties that. Um, Saudi Arabia, the Middle East, but also Europe, emerging markets are going to have are going to face in the future balancing between the relationship between China and the US. Mm. So it uh, you know developing a strong uh, relationship with China for Europe seemed like a good idea sometime a while ago, but now maybe less so. And I, I suspect the Saudis might might find that there, there are similar challenges. Mm. Yeah, I guess th- then you think about countries like India that is much more pro-US than it is China, and that relationship has never been a, a good one either. Uh, correct, and also, obviously, they have a different stance um, on on Russia than than yeah. the West does. Yeah. So, I mean, th- that one of them, again, what Russia, the Russia-Ukraine conflict has been an accelerator. The, the relationship and, uh, between uh, what some call the global south, it's, it's, that's a, a funny expression, but the, the emerging markets more broadly and and the west and the us is obviously is obviously challenged by by this geopolitical situation mm. and this this geopolitical situ- uh, this tension and and by the russia ukraine conflict no one wants to really pick sides but it's very clear that they have a different view of mm. of the russia ukraine conflict than than the west has mm. it's very clear they have different economic interests and they're set on pursuing them in a in a, in a different way mm. so I, th- I think one of the risks is for us is that we think that what we read and what we understand as the West stands is 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 also going to be the dominant view in 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 the global South, and it, it very certainly isn't. And it, the, the policy drivers there are very different. It's one of the things that we are monitoring very mm-hmm. carefully, mm-hmm. is how each individual country is mm-hmm. is maneuvering around in in that space. I guess it's going to be nationalism first is probably the right way to describe it. You know, you think about your own country first and decide how you're going to pivot between the US, China and Russia, you know, accordingly. Na- national interest, of course, and, and that is the, that is, is the driver of, of, yeah. of, of politics. Yeah. Um, yeah. As, and, it should be, yeah. as it should be. As it should be. But it is a, a, a time of extraordinary uncertainty and ambiguity, mm. uh, which makes that those calculations really difficult. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Jens, uh, very complex time uh, but also a very fascinating and interesting time uh, thank you very much for uh, you know getting us through this maze um we'd love to have you on again i think the discussion was very interesting and there's there's a whole arms list of other things i want to ask you but uh, we'll certainly leave it for another time but uh jens Larson, thank you very much for coming on the podcast thank you very much for having me thank you uh, so that uh, wraps us up for today we'll speak to you again very soon and if you have any questions or you have any preferred guests please let me know speak to you soon thank you very much